in the season of Lent. And Lent technically began this past Wednesday when those of you who were able to make it out to our Ash Wednesday service had ash smeared across your foreheads in the shape of a cross. And we're reminded that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Everyone, from toddlers and teenagers to adults, were reminded that they are going to die someday. It's a humbling and, and heartbreaking experience. But the reason why Lent began this way and begins this way is because it's a season of preparation for the death of Christ. We're learning to die with Him, in Him, and for Him. Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas, in which anticipation and excitement grow the closer we get to that holy day. Well, Lent is likewise a season of preparation. But because we are preparing for the death of Jesus Christ, it's a season in which we practice mortification. We practice death. So that the glories of the resurrection, a new life that begins on Easter Day, shine all the brighter. And during this season of Lent, we are going to explore together several of the many psalms of lament sprinkled throughout the Psalter. The psalms of lament were written by people in distress, to be read by people in distress. And as such, they are simultaneously comforting and jarring in their raw honesty. The tone of the psalms of lament can at times feel brash, making you wonder aloud whether you can really say such things to God. And yet, there they are, forever captured in the word of God teaching us how to engage in a relationship with him when we are angry or confused or distressed. Their very presence invites us to put these words in our mouth and speak them back to God ourselves. And this morning we are going to be exploring Psalm 44, which at first does not sound like a lament at all. In fact, it begins by recounting God's faithfulness in times past and reads more like a a psalm of praise than a psalm of lament. But all that recollection is a setup. It only serves to accentuate the contrast between what the psalmist has experienced of God in the past and what he's experiencing in the present. One scholar summarizes this psalm in this way. You've helped us in the past. You must help us now. But you're not helping us. Even though we've done nothing to prohibit, you are helping us. So help us. The psalm is as simple as that. The psalmist begins by first recalling the stories about God that were passed down to him by his ancestors. The miraculous stories which we have heard with our ears, he says, and our fathers have told us. There is no one event that is called out by name, but the descriptions he provides in verses 2 and 3 conjure up images of the conquest and of the exodus. You afflicted the peoples, he writes in verse 2, but our fathers were set free. It's hard not to think of the plagues that God used to pry his people out of their enslavement to Pharaoh. The Egyptians were afflicted, and as a result, Pharaoh finally let God's people go. He set them free. With your own hand, you drove out the nations, he writes in verse 2. But you planted our fathers. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but by your right hand and your arm. And it's hard not to read this and think of the conquest of Canaan. Joshua recounts that event in 
Joshua 24, where it's described in this way. You went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and God gave them into your hand, and he sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. God gave you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. In the distant past, God had saved his people when in distress, in the conquest, and in the exodus. And the psalmist has also experienced this for himself in the recent past. At verse 4, the the personal pronouns of this psalm change so that the tense is is no longer plural but singular. The psalmist is no longer talking about they and them, but about me and us. In verse 7, he writes, You have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. There's not just a historical memory of God's concern for his people's well-being, but also a personal experience of God and of this concern. The psalmist knows the love of God and has had that knowledge strengthened through his own experience. But beginning in verse 9, there comes a harsh transition. This is when you realize that the first eight verses were only setting you up for this punch in the gut. But you've rejected us and disgraced us. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. It is a harsh transition. In reading scripture, we're used to reading harsh transitions, but they're often running in the opposite direction. From rejection to grace. Ephesians 2 is a perfect example because you're familiar with it from the assurance of pardon. The Apostle Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is a transition from rejection to grace. That is a transition to sing praises about. But Psalm 44 writes a transition from grace to rejection. From a rich history of God's faithfulness to abandonment. Which begs the question, what happened? What changed to alter God's feelings and action towards this psalmist so much in the present? The psalmist demands to know. He's angry. And typically, we offer the person who is angry with God two solutions to try and calm them down a bit. But the psalmist sees us coming and heads us off before we even get a chance to speak. The first solution that is typically offered is that It's not God's fault, so why are you mad at him? But the psalmist refuses to allow God to be cleared of all culpability. Verses 9 through 14, six verses all begin with you. You, 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 you did this. 
In recounting God's past benevolence, the psalmist correctly identified throughout that God was the one who gave the victory. It was by his arm he planted, he saved, he won the victory. But does he get the credit for the good things and then get a pass when things turn sour? No, the psalmist won't allow it. He won't allow it. God is as much involved in our lives when things are bad as he is when things are good. The psalmist maintains his firm belief in the sovereignty of God throughout all of life, and therefore he holds his ground. You did this. And the second suggestion typically made to those angry with God because of some distress or suffering they are experiencing is the subtle, often underhanded, suggestion that they must have done something to deserve this. And the psalmist totally beats this one to the punch. For in verses 17 to 21, he boldly declares himself innocent. More than that, he has been faithful. And not just him, but we, the community to which the psalmist belongs, has been faithful. In those five verses, he declares, we've not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not departed from your way. We have not forgotten the name of our God. We did not spread out our hands to a foreign God. We have done nothing wrong. It's quite a bold thing to declare yourself innocent before God. But God has not revealed to the psalmist any reason that he shouldn't be so bold. God has not provided the psalmist or the community any reason for the opposition they are experiencing, which is typically what we see from God. You know, a classic example of this is Israel's defeat at the battle of Ai in Joshua 7. Israel was routed in war, and Joshua came to God, falling on his face, much like the psalmist is doing, and complaining to him about this terrible thing which he's allowed to happen to his people. And in verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed the covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put um, put them among their own belongings. That's why the people of Israel cannot be saved from their enemies. They had broken the covenant. They had been disobedient, and God let them know. But there had been no such communication with the people suffering in Psalm 44. The psalmist was right. We've done nothing wrong. Why are we suffering? What's going on here? Has God altered his affections towards the people he once loved? Is he fickle in his love? Does he not love them any longer? The psalmist doesn't believe that to be true at all. In fact, this entire psalm ends with an appeal to God's steadfast love. He's seen too much of God, both in the distant and the recent past, to believe that he doesn't love them. The evidence won't permit that conclusion. So what's going on here? In verse 23, the psalmist scandalously and actually strategically suggests that perhaps God's fallen asleep. Awake, he says. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And the reason this is both scandalous and strategic is because the suggestion that God has fallen asleep is a comparison to Baal, a false God whom God, the true God, absolutely despises. You see, when God's prophet Elijah and the priests of Baal had a showdown to 
prove whose God was the true God in 1 Kings 19.27, the Baal worshippers could not for the life of them get Baal to burn up their sacrifice, and Elijah began to hilariously mock them. He suggested that perhaps you should yell louder because Baal can't hear you. He suggested that perhaps Baal was going to the bathroom and therefore unavailable. He suggested that perhaps Baal had fallen asleep. And by suggesting that God has fallen asleep as well, the psalmist is asking God whether he's become like Baal, a false and powerless God. It's a scandalous thing to suggest. But it's also strategic because the psalmist is using what he knows about God and he is praying his character back to him. He is appealing to God's proven love for him and he is also appealing to God's desire to prove himself the greatest of all gods, the God of gods, the only true and living God. He's trying to rouse God to have mercy and prove his greatness in the redemption of his people. It seems almost silly to talk about God sleeping and the need to rouse him from his slumber. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, that's exactly what the disciples had to do with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat when a storm vicious enough to terrify seasoned fishermen descended upon the boat and threatened to send the men and their boat to the bottom of the sea. And where is Jesus in all of this? He's asleep on the boat. In the, middle of the storm, in the middle of the storm, God is sleeping. It's Psalm 44, come to life in narrative form. The apostles shake Jesus awake in their panic, and over the sound of the wind and the waves, they shout to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care about us? It's the very question the psalmist poses. And Jesus responded to their question with an action that says, Of course I care. I not only care, but I'm capable. He silenced the wind, and immediately the sea became calm. But having spoken peace to the waves, he then turns to the disciples, and he speaks to them as well. And he expresses disappointment in their lack of faith. Why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? It's an absolutely shocking question from Jesus. Why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? What do you expect? They thought they were going to die. Was it really so inappropriate for them to have run to God in their fear and distress? And if so, then what does that mean for Psalm 44? Because the apostles are merely living out this psalm. And even further, what does Jesus' rebuke mean for how we should use this psalm, which we have spent the morning unpacking and explaining? Is it inappropriate for us to read this psalm to God if doing so earned the apostles a rebuke from Jesus? It's really troubling. But I was trying to understand this, and I found the most helpful quote from none other than John Calvin in his commentary on the Psalms. And he writes this. It's a little bit lengthy, and it's Calvin, so bear with me. We must indeed firmly believe that God ceases not to regard us, although he appears not to do so. Yet as such an assurance is of faith and not of the flesh, that is to say, is not natural to us, the faithful familiarly give utterance before God to this contrary sentiment, which they conceive from the state of things as it is presented to their view. 
And in doing so, they discharge from their breasts these morbid affections which belong to the corruption of our nature, in consequence of which faith then shines forth in its pure and native character. If it is objected that prayer, than which nothing is more holy, is defiled when some contrary imagination of the flesh is mingled with it, I confess it's true. But in using this freedom, which the Lord vouchsafes to us, let us consider that in his goodness and mercy, which he sustains us, he wipes away this fault, that our prayers may not be defiled by it. What Calvin is saying is that ideally we'll never question God's love for us. Even when everything we experience appears to contradict that belief. Ideally that's the case. However, faith like that is unnatural to us in our fallen state. While we still rely so much on sight and experience and feeling. Therefore the prayers that God's people pray when in distress. Prayers like Psalm 44 and the shoutings of the apostles at sea, these prayers are an expression of faith and the means by which faith grows. It's true that such prayers are compromised by a lack of faith inherent in them, but God has given these prayers to us nonetheless. And in his goodness and mercy, he does not ultimately consider us guilty because of the contradictory ways in which we speak to him in prayer. To connect this with the scene at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus may have scolded the apostles for their lack of faith, but still he answered their prayer and calmed the sea, didn't he? And their engagement with God, contradictory and complicated and compromised as it was in their complexity of their faith, was the means by which they came to know him better. The story of the calming of the sea ends with the apostles marveling and questioning to themselves, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and seas obey him? The result of their living and praying Psalm 44 was a new understanding of Jesus. And Psalm 44 has been put in your Bibles for the same purpose, that praying the words of this psalm as you suffer, you might come to know God better and grow in your faith in him. Already we see, and indeed we heard Kendra read for us, that the Apostle Paul himself benefited from Psalm 44, even as he teaches us in Romans 8, his lessons learned from Psalm 44. And there are two of them in particular, and with these we will close. The first is that the the psalmist was a, a righteous sufferer among the ranks of Job. He had done nothing wrong, and yet God had seemingly fallen asleep on him. The psalmist and his community felt neglected by God and more than neglected, actively opposed even. And as he lists his complaints, he says something that the Apostle Paul seizes upon. It captures his attention. The psalmist said in verse 22, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes it word for word in Romans 8. It was the for your sake referring to God that captured Paul's imagination because it reminded him of another righteous sufferer who was killed and regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. It reminded him of Jesus who was killed for your sake, for my sake. God really did abandon him on the cross. It wasn't a lack of faith that made him think so. No, it really happened. 
He really was abandoned, but it happened for your sake, so that we might be welcomed into the embrace of our Father in heaven and know only his love. But having died for your sake, Jesus now calls us to die for his sake, to become like those who are killed all the day long in the way that we deny ourselves and give ourselves away for the sake of others. He calls us to be different from the culture in which we live so that we become regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, misunderstood, mocked, made fun of. John Calvin writes, We ought to regard it as a settled point that a state of continual warfare in bearing the cross is enjoined upon us by divine appointment. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. You must suffer. He died for your sake, and now you have the opportunity with your life to die for him. But Paul positions this quote of Psalm 44 with its sobering call to innocent suffering right smack dab in the middle of potentially the most reassuring part of the Bible. For Paul reasons in Romans 8 that because God alone is qualified to serve as our judge and Jesus Christ has died in our place, then there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Our verdict was passed on to him. And nothing will now be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He lists out the possibilities. Famine, war, death, distance, persecution, demons, demagogues. And the conclusion is that Jesus overcame each and every one of them on the cross. He is victorious to this day. And the Lord's Supper is an enduring gift for us that soothes our troubled minds as we suffer Reminding us that God's kindness is not a memory from some distant past, something our fathers told us about. God's love wasn't just for a brief season of life, the recent past. No, the work of the cross endures. And Christ abides with us in our suffering in order to guarantee our victory in him. The answer to Psalm Psalm 44 is the cross. And the more we pray this psalm to God, the the more we will become convinced that he's not asleep, but he's risen. And will come again for those who have followed him into and through the grave. For after death comes life. And we shall see that after Lent comes Easter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.